Hey, Jordan, how's it going? Hey, Rob, what's up? I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot up. It's a big week. Big things are happening right now. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of changes around here as well. Yeah, changes around the office. And, you know, I've been, I've been looking forward to this. You know, we do need, we've needed a shakeup for a while. Um, we always want to be moving forward, right? We always want to make sure we're respecting the marketplace of ideas, free speech. We don't want to have any kind of unconscious bias on the program. Right. Of course, you know, it helps to be called out for that kind of stuff. Um, so that's why I would just want to send a big insurgence hello to new board member Elon Musk. Right. Really exciting times. He's going to be stepping in, I think making things fun again over here. Mm-hmm. Really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's, uh, he has, um, pitched us on a lot of really good ideas and I just, I think he... I think his vision for the insurgents, where to take it, um, how to make our brand stronger by uh, appealing to uh, just the worst people on the internet. Yes, yeah. Uh, I thought exactly. it was like a vision that I could really get behind. Absolutely, yeah. The main other, the other main big change that we need to talk about is now for subscribers, for Substack subscribers, uh, you're officially invested ground floor in uh, Insurgents Coin. Mm-hmm. So buy the dip on that because now you're in, it's a very, it's a huge opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's a huge opportunity. You know, there's a lot of things, a lot of difficult times for our generation right now, economically, a lot of instability. What you need is a stable investment that will never, ever backfire on you. That is not just there to benefit us primarily at everyone else's expense. You need something that's not that. That's why you got to invest right. in Insurgents Coin by subscribing to the insurgents.substack.com. And I think his his vision of making a circulating supply of four quadrillion was yes. just brilliant. Because now with like a very small investment, uh, you could be a, a Insurgents Coin billionaire. That's so right. yeah. how many people can say that? Not a lot. Not a lot. <laughs> No, but on our Substack, uh, which we would encourage you to check out, theinsurgents.substack.com, we want to spend more time there with you all. So we've been starting these discussion threads there where we're all going to talk through some of the news of the day or the week, whatever. Monday we did one where we talked about Elon buying Twitter and what it would look like and what would moderation look like. Do you think he'll actually go through with it? Is he committed to these free speech ideals he's been espousing? Today we did one. We're recording on Thursday. Today we did one about Biden's uh, potential student debt cancellation and looking for your predictions, your analysis. Do you think it should be canceled? We would argue that it should. So join us over there at theinsurgents.substack.com to join the conversation because we really want to. It's, it's much easier there to have actual conversations about some of these issues than obviously we can't talk here or when we're, either of us are on Twitch or on our respective channels um, or on Twitter because Twitter is just not really a great place for long thought out conversations. So I do like that platform for this. It's in fact really better. bad for those long thought out conversations. Yeah. <laughs> I actively avoided it in fact. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> 
Uh, it's awful. Anyway, on this subject, though, as well, we are talking today to Edward Angueso Jr. of uh, Motherboard about Elon, the possible purchase of Twitter, his whole like fake wealth, <laughs> um, you know, what possible changes are going to be coming to Twitter. Uh, we had a really a great discussion about all this stuff, as well as some of this this business about Biden potentially canceling student debt. Really good talk with Edward Angueso Jr. That's going to be coming up in just a few minutes. Do we have anything else before? Yeah, I'm. I'm. I mean, look on the Elon thing. I don't. I, you'll as you'll hear. I don't know how much is going to change. I don't think a lot will change. But I am hearing reports from people on the inside. He's going to ban Ken. He's going to ban Ken's account once right. and for all. And for that, I stand behind him one hundred percent. Absolutely. Um, this is a scourge that we've been trying to deal with now for over two years. And frankly, no one is, we've been talking about this and no one has been listening. No one's been listening to us. No one's been respecting mm-hmm. our lived experience here when it comes to this. So thank you, Elon, for they finally. They haven't seen us. They haven't heard no, us. There's no seeing. Finally, or Elon hearing. will. Yeah. Thank you, Elon. That's, oh, thank God. That <laughs> should be great. Um, <laughs> so again, folks, uh, subscribe to the, the Substack if you haven't already. Get access to the bonus content. I have to go watch playoff basketball now. I'm very excited and nervous. <laughs> so let's get to our interview with Edward Anguesto Jr. He's going to be joining the show right after this. Now we're joined by Edward Anguesto. Uh, Edward. We ask the same question of all of our guests right off the bat, and we've, it's, it's your turn to answer. Edward, are yep. you a gamer? Yeah, I'm a big gamer. Let's you, hear it. There we go. <laughs> all nice. right. Right now I'm putting in the work with uh, Elden Ring, of course, but I love me Crusader Kings, uh, Hearts of Iron, Sims, uh, the Total War games, Call of Duty, Halo. Uh, Fortnite, anything, you know, pretty much any game. Shooters, strategy games, RPGs, build shit, all of it. This guy loves gaming. I love it. Yeah. Hell yeah. Are y'all gamers? Yeah, this is a gaming podcast. Hell yes. (laughs) Of course. I've been trying to make it so, at least. (laughs) I've seen, yeah, no, I've I've seen y'all on Twitch and and play a few games, but I just wanted to, you know, double check that we're all on the same page. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The conversation usually ends if, if they say no. So, yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, in fact, one, in fact once you've played on Twitch, that, that qualifies you as being a professional gamer as well. So, that's true. That's true. Yeah, that's how serious we take this shit. Yeah. Hell yeah. So, I, uh, I did the early access for the new Magic the Gathering set the other night. They mm-hmm. asked me if I would stream it. And uh, I don't think either of you know who Day Nine is, but he's like a really big Magic streamer has been playing for like probably decades just really really influential in the community but what they do is when they do this early access stuff they invite all these people together for like a limited night where you get access to every card in the upcoming set so you can kind of preview it and build hype around it but then as a result if you participate you're matched up against like legends right Mm -hmm. and i got matched up with this guy on one of the games and i saw his name like on my screen it's like you're playing day nine it's like 
I'm going to get my teeth kicked in. And I ended it's up like somehow. It's the equivalent in Lord of the, Lord of the Rings when the Balrog emerges and it's like, oh, shit. <laughs> Basically. And I somehow, I, I beat him and like pretty handily. And that's oh. like, that's going to be, I think, my the peak of my Magic the Gathering career. <laughs> I, was gonna, I recorded <laughs> it from his VOD so I can get his reaction. I'm just going to like play that at my funeral, please. Yes. <laughs> and his. You know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, pack watch. Um, so, Rob, you got a big night tonight. Yeah, yeah. Uh, very excited. Um, you know, not a lot of people, Jordan uh, and Edward, predicted the Raptors would make a lot of noise this season. And this isn't a sports podcast, but on this very podcast months ago, I did predict uh, at the beginning of the season that the Raptors would make the playoffs the Toronto Raptors, mm-hmm. um, the playoff for round one matchup against Philadelphia. The first three games were an absolute nightmare. Pretty much the worst, most depressing outcome of every single game was absolutely horrible. Has since been turned on its head. The Raptors now tonight heading back to Toronto have the ability to force a decisive game seven uh, to make cool. history. First team to come back from an 0-3 deficit. Very, very exciting stuff. I'm very hyped. <laughs> And all the yeah. and this one, all the analysts, all the experts, the so-called experts, got this one wrong. Mm-hmm. And our little old me on our little old podcast <laughs> had the correct analysis as usual. Uh huh. Now so, the real uh, gamer question is: Are you going to gamble on the game? No, I'm not a big gambling guy. Mm, okay. I just feel like I've thought about it. It's actually amazing how much like now that gambling, sports gambling, has been like normalized. Mm-hmm. When you see like the ads for the when you watch these games, it's just all gambling. On shit. the on the subways too, yeah. everywhere. <laughs> I was surprised by that. Watching these NBA playoffs has just been all crypto and all all gambling. Oh. I don't know what that says. I don't know what that says about society, but it's probably nothing it. good. Um, <laughs> no, it's fine. It's fine. Yeah. I'm pretty sure it's all fine. Uh, that's the thing. I just I'm not very good with money to begin with, so it's like I don't need this. I don't need to add that wrinkle into my my financial situation. <laughs> trying to trying to go add full Adam Sandler on <laughs> cut gems. That's where I'm gonna end up if I start going down that path. So yeah. honestly, phenomenal movie though. <laughs> At game seven though, if they, if they force it, I'm gonna be that's history right there. You understand? <laughs> that's gonna be me. <laughs> that's what I'm gonna be saying to everybody. This is how Rob wins. Uh, Edwards, do, you, do, you, do you have a team that you're pulling for in the playoffs? Uh, no, you know, I uh, I grew up and, you know, when I got into NBA growing up, you know, I'm from Oklahoma, so it was OKC, but in the playoffs, no, I'm just watching it and maybe making bets based on what friends say, if anything, you know, little tiny bets. Um but yeah, nothing, no real motivating, no real motivating like this or that team this time around. I think I'm just along for the ride. I, I'd love to see Memphis win. Yeah, yeah, they're they're a lot of fun. It was nice last year. I remember when the Raptors had that really bad season in in Tampa because mm. of the pandemic. It was nice actually to be able to watch the playoffs without the emotional ties, without the deep roller coaster ride of the back and forth drama and being able to just kind of dispassionately enjoy the game and not get too worked up about it that was it was a nice little respite for one year but now i'm right back being <laughs> fully emotionally invested in this stuff and now you feeling, are going to get stressed out oh yeah. i'm gonna be extra i'm stressed already and it's not, it hasn't even started yet so yeah, anyway anyway um <laughs> we love to we love to start the the pod off with a little chit chat about gaming and sports or that kind of stuff but 
Edward, we brought you on for a very specific purpose. You do a lot of great work covering uh, the tech world. Big tech story this week, obviously, with Elon Musk possibly on the verge of buying Twitter, um, which has been a pretty interesting roller coaster over the last week or so. What do you make of all this, Edward? What's your takeaway after the, the last couple of days of craziness with that? Is this deal going through? Can you help us break this down? Yeah, you know, I think the deal is probably going to go through. Um, it's hard to imagine it doesn't for a few reasons. You know, one, you know, Twitter is pretty important for Musk, not because he cares about free speech, but because it's where his supporters live. That's where a lot of the amplification of his business goes. You know, whenever he tweets, something gains market cap or monetary value in a way that it doesn't if he actually works on it. So it would make sense for him to just buy it um, and tinker with it. And as some people have commented on, uh, commented on, you know, because he's taking out loans against Tesla stock um, to guarantee financing for th uh, the purchase of it, he's not going to tinker with it too much where it changes and it can't yield him that amplification effect, but it'll change it probably enough where it's a little bit of a money maker and he can begin to pay down the interest and eventually the principal, you know, on some of these loans that he's uh, had to take out. It's like $25 billion in debts and $21 billion in financing of his own, right? So, I mean, he has incentive to take out the deal, has incentive to make some small changes to Twitter, but not too many, because Twitter, as it is right now, the health, state, the health site that we all love, is really good for him, you know? He tweets, and a lot of people love it. A lot of people dunk on it, but much more people love it, because uh, he's uh, done a really great job at cultivating um, fandom, uh, cultish followers, um, a pretty impressive, you know, network of people who will who probably would die for him. If the infamous the weird nerds of the yeah. of the Elon meme that we you always know. see every time he comes up. So I think that's really it. You know, it's gonna ha it's probably gonna happen. He's probably gonna make it work for him, and probably nothing's really gonna change because he's kind of similar to Jack Dorsey. You know, um, I think what will change is probably like as we've been seeing over the last week. Some individual Twitter employees are probably going to be like targeted for harassment um, and individuals will probably be targeted by harassment because of his tweeting and, and the toxic dynamics around his following. But I mean, that's also something that happens and, on go and goes on anyways. Those same people are also harassed by conservatives and right wingers for things that they did that were perceived as part of like a conspiracy to silence right wingers. It, yeah, it's just you already see kind of an emboldened nature and tone from the right. Uh, they also seem to think that it happened like immediately, which I, I find pretty funny. Um, just like we got six months. Like, yeah, it's just like, hey, yeah, Elon took over. Let's go. Um, just that's kind of not how it works. It's been funny to see um, people who are like, oh, my, my, I'm suddenly getting retweets again. Did Elon Musk flip a switch? And it's like. No. He pressed the, the he did the Thanos snap, and all the shadow banned conservatives were immediately right brought back. But Idiots. I mean, that's just you know they they game the refs that way, right. like always complaining about being shadow banned by always insisting that Twitter's unfair to them. In actuality, Twitter did an analysis of its algorithm and found that conservative content performs well gets an algorithmic boost and they released these findings publicly last year or the year before and nobody on the right cared because it didn't fit into their grievance narrative but that's that's the reality they they do fine on twitter um and despite that they're now claiming that like they're suddenly uh free from this tyrannical algorithmic burden 
that they finally now uh, are having their tweets seen and heard. It's just it's it's ludicrous. But I, I some of the other stuff has been really problematic, um, like some of the uh, the rhetoric, the tone. Like Charlie Kirk just tweeted out today, like white people are under attack in this country, which is just like they're just going to go all out with this. I guess um, it's just really gross the, the, how emboldened they feel. Yeah, you know, I think um, I think that the you know. It's interesting, or we'll have to probably wait a little bit to also see what that emboldening is going to translate to additionally, right? You know, I'm curious if, you know, I'm wrong and, and like, it, it's not that it actually, or not that there aren't, you know, and, and I'm wrong in, or to back up, I'm wrong in thinking that there won't be immediate changes, but actually, like you said, because they're emboldened, they end up running a bunch of people off of the site, creating such a toxic environment that a lot of people kind of voluntarily leave the site, right? Um... Or, you know, the way that the site functions for the next few months because of this might result in some policy changes that might not have otherwise happened, uh, good or bad, right? I, it's, I'm, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen because it's also like Elon Musk is kind of an idiot and I'm not, you know, the way that he perceives or understands stuff that happens on the website doesn't seem to exactly line up with how it works. So may, he might look at all the right wing harassment and think like he's doing a good job because both sides are angry, as he keeps saying. On on the one hand, I don't totally understand people like panicking over this. Like, yeah. oh my goodness, can you believe that Twitter is going to be run by one of these crypto loving, tech billionaire libertarian losers? Like, yeah, I can't imagine that. That's exactly who runs all the tech companies uh, that we that we all use. Uh, like you're pointing out, I do think it is uh, worthwhile to talk about the the specific individuals that he's like targeting for harassment in his own company. I mean, that's definitely that's very fucked up. But in terms of this, like being able to be worked um, by this kind of faux outrage campaign or like the in terms of listening to these ideas about this left wing bias that apparently exists in places like Twitter and Facebook and all these social networks. It doesn't seem like even though he's like giving voice to this kind of rhetoric and he's retweeting memes to this effect or whatever but it seems like his views on this are pretty par for the course um, among all these different social media companies who have proven time and time again facebook especially uh especially considering who sits on their board mm-hmm. uh are often very willing and open to listen to these kind of complaints about bias and trying to adjust their strategy and 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 fix these non-existent uh censorship campaigns like facebook is such a good example because you look at i mean they say the exact same thing about these left-wing bias when it comes to facebook you look at the top performing facebook pages and it's all don bongino and ben shapiro and all these weirdos um they're the people that dominate in the right-wing media that just dominates facebook uh, news feeds all all around the world basically and they're still kind of very open to this idea that there's some kind of uh, implicit left-wing bias that they need to make up for so um yeah like while while musk definitely seems to be more willing maybe than some others to like openly vocalize this it doesn't seem like that's going to change all that much in terms of the ethos for how these these social media sites are are uh, governed you know yeah you know i think it's also like it ends up being a sort of a distraction too, right? Because we should be thinking, you know, Twitter's in of itself, not the center of the universe, but it does feel that way because of who's on it, right? Entertainment, you know, Hollywood's on here, uh, Washington is on here, Silicon Valley's on here, New York City's uh, media is on here. But, you know, I think it is an opportunity, right, uh, to think about, okay, well, if we don't like or we are worried about this sort of 
situation, you know, what is the type of social media network we would want and what goes into it? Like what sort of designs and what sort of values do we want to emphasize and how do we want people to communicate, right? Um, and do we want to have a places or places where we can experiment with different types of moderation or different types of communities and different types of policies, right? I think our tendency is when a piece of tech is built to assume that it's there forever and all that can really be done is to tinker with it instead of like, you know, destroy it and start back up or provide alternatives that take people away from it. And part of that is hard because we've all built up relationships on Twitter and connections to people and connection to audiences uh, that you can't exactly migrate everywhere, anywhere else. But then that should be like another challenge to think of like, okay, so what kind of social media systems can we develop where you can port over that information, right? Where they're interoperable with one another and you don't actually have to stay attached to one place or another if you're really concerned about it. Because I think like, you know, as it is, you know, Twitter's a fun place and social media networks are a fun place to post. But if we do want them around, we should also think about if there is a purpose to them and what kind of purposes we want for them and what kind and how the how we can design these networks to have conf, confide with that. Do we really think Twitter is a public square? Then maybe do, do we want to design it as a public square? Do we want to design it as a place where people can make jokes with each other or share entertainment or all of or some blend of all of them? Or do we want dedicated spaces for any of that? And I think like in the noise with Elon Musk, that stuff gets lost. Understandably, though, right? This is the richest man on the planet buying something that's of central concern to a lot of people who will, you know, talk and write about it, right? But it's also an opportunity for us to say, like, okay, well, what should social uh, networks look like in that case? I mean, well, what do you prefer? Like, I, I like the idea of being able to migrate audiences and have some kind of central underlying, you know, like you could port email lists from place to place. Like, you can get, like, CRMs uh, let you kind of manage your relationships wherever you're doing business you know what 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 is what is the solution here like what i mean and that might be too broad of a question but like what could something better look like you know i think there's some options right you know protocols are an interesting way where you want something that's open source you want something that tries to protect data of users and prioritize user control and allow them to design the experience or allow them to decentralize as much as the operation as possible. You want, you know, that interoperability I was talking about, you want adversarial interoperability where it does, where even against the will of Twitter or Facebook or social or, or, um, or Instagram or any other social network, you're able to, you don't have to be on that platform to use it or to access it. And if you want to leave it, you can, and you can still bring, you can figure out ways to connect to the people who are still in those places, whether it's as an audience whether it's as, uh, you know, social connections and friends, right? I think a lot of the way that the social media world is carved up, it's closed gardens and you and everyone kind of accepts implicitly or is told to accept. You can only talk to these people and he, if you're in this garden, right? But it shouldn't really have to be that way. Like it, it doesn't make sense if you really think or sit down and think about it, why you shouldn't be able, why you shouldn't be able to communicate with people on a network or platform, even if you're not connected to it. As long as you're on the internet in of itself, right? You should be able to have connections with people who are on Twitter or Mastodon or Tumblr without having to spend all the time in that community. The question is like, do we want, how do we build up the tools for that, right? And part of the problem is the corporation, corporations are never really gonna build that stuff up in of themselves. The goal is to have audiences concentrated inside the walled garden so that they can, you know, juice up the advertising business. Um, and 
you know, there are a lot of moving parts here that until they're kind of like tackled, I think it's hard to construct that alternative, but should be still like thought of and considered. And it is, I think, quite funny um, when you take into account all these other right wing alternatives that have been proposed or created uh, these right wing Twitter alternatives, whether it's Parler or Gab or Truth Social or whatever, they keep kind of trying to make these these different networks where they can be free of the kind of uh, the apparent persecution that they're experiencing constantly. But it's just so funny how as much as they try to make these new networks happen, the thing that keeps them crawling back to Twitter and the reason that, like you're pointing out, the reason that Musk wanted to purchase Twitter in the first place is because of the audience that's there that they can't just recreate. Um, and they've realized as well that they can't just cultivate an audience of right-wing freaks. They Part of the the dopamine hit of, of being online or being connected to people on Twitter or elsewhere is all the people that you hate as well and all the people that are, that are on there that you can't just magically uh, make appear on these other competing networks. So it is funny in that context considering how many uh, uh, folks have tried to kind of create this alternative versus Musk's approach to just buy the genuine article himself rather than try and create some some half-assed new product that no one's gonna think no one's gonna use you do have to kind of hand it to him on that one yeah you know um and <laughs> right that's been the strategy for um a while i mean analogous to what happened with tesla i mean buy something that's established and then build it up from there um and you know i can't i like you know it's it, it'll work out for him he doesn't have to make something like truth social right which is uh <laughs> i mean i haven't followed that in a while but i'm not sure you know however that's going on or the other one i can't remember the other um getter the other uh, do you do you remember it? It was the one that had uh, kept having hacks where all the information of the conservative users was leaked, um, and uh, truth truth or something like that. I don't remember the name of it, but you know, like these social networks, I think are example right where it's hard to build one up, and it's hard to build one up that's secure and that people can use easily um and that works and also has content moderation and also is like able to keep the users on it. Uh, so yeah. Why not just buy buy something else that someone else built up um, and shit post away on it? It uh, added bonus. He already has fun on the website, and every time he uses it, he gets money. So there's been a lot of complex people. I think the behavior has bordered, if not totally, been hysterical, and a lot of people were airing out these fears, like, "Oh, Elon's gonna read your DMs." Like. Pro- probably not like almost very likely not um mm-hmm. they should be encrypted but that doesn't seem like a real substantive risk because it's like just not that making something illegal stops people from doing it but like it would be it would be a nightmare if people did that at twitter especially him um and you know like the, on top of other claims and worries about his behavior and who he would promote and that kind of stuff and you know that's all about his ownership but like what has gotten like left out of this conversation uh but should be talked about is how the saudis have been like a huge investor in twitter for years yeah it'd be crazy if someone evil owned twitter that would be yeah and there was like a moment when they like he first floated the offer the saudis objected to it and it just set up this dynamic where like if you kind of knew nothing and didn't have any context you'd think like oh wow thank you <laughs> thank you mbs for, for for stopping this deal yeah. uh, but they, but also you know the saudis had you know covertly influenced staff inside to share information about saudi users right. and you didn't get a lot of attention on that so like there it's it's there are elements of this that are ripe for exploitation with bad actors staffing 
this. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I don't think some of the complaints about Elon running this are well-founded. I think it's just kind of a reactionary knee-jerk uh, chattering cycle. Yeah, no, I agree. I think, I mean, I think, I think that it's also like, like you said, one, he still doesn't, he doesn't have the company at all too. Um, so, you know, if you are concerned about him and what he's going to do, I think it, it would behoove someone to wait a little bit also to see w- discussions about the policies that are going to be run out. Um, but all, because, you know, for the reason that we talked about before, there are limits to what he can do. He has to make some money back, but he has to preserve the money making ability. Um, you know, but two also, you know, Twitter's been private before. Twitter has been run by um, a libertarian mystic before uh, who thinks that they or some project that they are associated with is going to save the world. You know, Jack Dorsey deeply believed that Bitcoin was going to save the world um, or is going to save the world. Um, and it's also been run in periods where there were free speech maximalists who were insisting that that was the way that uh, this uh, platform needed to be run. And I mean... There were times that are analogous to what they are now. It's not pleasant, but it also wasn't the end of the platform. It just required or eventually resulted in a large enough backlash where people did have to actually you know, consider alternatives, toning down the free speech maximalism, looking at alternatives to content moderation, you know, trying to cultivate some goodwill and trust again after turning the website into a honeypot for assholes, as some you know, executive told one journalist, right? It's, 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 we've been here before. But I think that there is like um, people are freaking out a little bit more about it because, again, you know, it's the richest man in the world. He's an asshole. Um, He runs factories that, are, you know, people call the most racist places that they've ever worked at. He runs a bunch of companies that also have products that don't really work and do what they're supposed to. Um, He it feels very much like that he runs on fumes and vaporware. So I understand people's, you know, kind of frenzied desire to imagine the worst but it's almost certainly going to just be a slightly dumber version of what we have now. i think the question that i find interesting uh when you talk about kind of censorship and moderation and free speech is you know the way that we've seen um different social media companies again whether it's facebook whether it's youtube develop these kind of ties to the u.s national security state and how they start to engage in these campaigns of, of, of sometimes of censorship or of um, we're seeing that a lot now, of course, with the Russia-Ukraine uh, conflict and all these kind of Russian state media uh, outlets being banned. We've seen the thing of like designating Chinese or Russian state media as state media. Well, of course, pretending that state media in the West doesn't exist. Um, we've seen these social media companies, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, um, be willing to kind of play ball with the national security establishment and, and engage in kind of this kind of uh, moderation based on their goals. Uh, so that's kind of one thing that I'm interested in about um, if this deal does go through and if Musk does take over, what direction, if any, he's going to have on that kind of phenomenon, whether he actually means that Twitter should be a more of a, a free speech zone or whether when it comes to these questions of like national security, whether he's going to be or Twitter under Musk, uh, if this goes through, is going to be willing to uh, do the work of, of this kind of national security establishment, or whether he's going to push back against that in any way. Nothing he's ever done has really indicated that he would push back against it, um, as much as he's like a free speech advocate that he's that he's painted himself to be. Yeah, you know, I think part of it is, I think, like, as you raised, uh, you know, a good point, there's a, you know, the West, um, there is, of course, a bit of 
hypocrisy about the way about state media and sponsorship of and censorship and so on and so forth, right? I mean, in in other countries, you know, Noam Chomsky has talked at length about this. In other countries, you know, the the way that you control populations is um, violence and force. Or in countries that are not explicitly democracies, ostensibly, right? The way you're supposed to control people if it's an authoritarian regime is force. However, if you're in a democracy or a country that prides itself as like, you know, a democracy, you can't really use force. And it, and the, the real instrument that you have is, um, you know, in, inculcating people with beliefs that that align with whatever the interests are so that you don't have to use force, right? Indoctrination, um, narrowing of opinion, so on and so forth, right? So I think like in, in, on a base level, right, there, ha- there doesn't have to be a lot of collusion amongst um, amongst actors in the West because, you know, like George Orwell said, right, it, certain if you get up to a certain position in society or if you're in certain rungs of society, you just understand that there's certain things you don't think or certain things that you don't contradict because it doesn't make sense to, and you're taught that over time or socialized into believing that, right? But then on the other hand, right, I think there's also the question of like, well, what kind of penetration and 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 and, subs- and subservience would you see from Twitter and other social media policies in the United States, you know? Um, and I think that on the one hand, you'll you probably, there's nothing really to stop, for example, other countries from infiltrating them like the Saudis did, right? The Saudis are shareholders in Twitter and the Saudis also used Twitter to establish a spy ring so that they could uncover dissidents and presumably execute them, right? Um, there's nothing really to stop them from doing that under their, their libertarian uh, mystic uh, Dorsey, and there's nothing really to stop them from doing that under Musk, whatever his politics are, which are likely libertarian in some fashion, right? There's not much to stop the state in of itself here at home from, like, uh, demanding or insisting, as if I understand it correctly, right, access to someone's uh, messages or, or stuff that or communications, right, as... The federal government has done for pretty much all the platforms and services. And as the tech companies at first enthusiastically signed on to do, like as we found out during the PRISM program, right? Uh, thanks to the Snowden revelations, right? So I think, you know, whatever Musk's beliefs are, there are larger limits that will just make him act and discipline him in a way where he's not really going to shake the boat too much, right? You know, not much you can do if the government comes knocking, demanding. Um, access to this or that record as Twitter is right now. Uh, Not much you can do to, you know, even if it's a privately owned company, he's now subject to the demands of the bankers who gave him loans. Well, not subject to them, but he has to think about the bankers who gave him loans, right? So he has to do certain, there's certain things he will and won't do uh, with the company because they might impede his ability to pay back the loans, right? So he's still he's still going to be limited in ways where he'll just act and the company will probably act and look like the way it is before. And that means, you know, all the things that you pointed out before, right? It's still going to, it will likely still conform or comply with any request that might be made of it by the, by, um, security services or by the national or by the state in of itself right and it also will probably censor and continue to censor leftists or some dissidents while amplifying right-wingers and 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 people in their networks right i'm also interested in exploring the um the economics of this of this deal um because you i mean you hit on this a few minutes ago talking about how musk is technically the richest man in the world but 
how has he become the richest man in the world? It's kind of a confusing when you start to dig into this. Normally, you think of these wealthy industrialists as having created these hugely successful, profitable companies. Um, and you would think this this person that gets held up as being this genius inventor industrialist who's literally the richest man in the world maybe would be such a person who's in charge of some immensely profitable, powerful company that produces this product that everyone has. Not the case with Musk, whose company doesn't really produce a lot of product, whose product has been you know recalled. Uh, I think a few months ago they recalled like literally almost all the Teslas that had been mass produced. Mm-hmm. Um, like it is not it is not a profitable company. It's not really a successful company. The entire reason that Musk is as wealthy as he is is entirely because of this like stock speculation that really makes no actual sense. Uh, it's been completely like artificially inflated. Uh, it's this massive Tesla bubble basically that's propelled him to this point. So when he's able to like make this big deal for Twitter for spending you know however forty two billion dollars or whatever it is. It's hard to understand like where all that is actually coming from. How do the economics of this even work? Like it's all of this money is fake. You know what I mean? Like all yeah. of this money is fake to begin with. It's amazing that we're still kind of like pretending that any of this makes sense. <laughs> but you know, apparently it does. But I, I don't. I don't understand it when I try to wrap my mind around it. As you heard from that butchered explanation of this. No, uh, I, I mean process. I think. But the way that you explained it is, I think the sense that most people have. I mean, most people when they're I think a lot of times there's a lot of effort made to like paint some this or that financial thing or piece of news is a little bit too complex. But generally speaking, when someone, most people have a good bullshit meter and when they hear people explain to them why something on the stock market uh, is worth this amount of money or why something, why this financial instrument is, is this complex and they, and they, and they smell bullshit, it's bullshit, right? You know, the reason why Musk is uh, why Tesla is worth a trillion dollars. It really has nothing to do with uh, any any fundamentals uh, that come with the company in of itself, right? But a good deal of it has to do with the hype that he's able to generate in, on social networks, specifically Twitter, right? Um, and, and the enthusiasm and the fanaticism that he can instill in, um, you know, supporters and investors that allow them to value the company more than the next 10 largest legacy car makers combined, right? And to make distorted projections about the future. And he can leverage that then, you know, smartly from the perspective of a capitalist, he can leverage it smartly as loans, you know, where he can make, um, you know, he can say my company's worth this much, my stock is worth this much, even if it's not really worth this much, I should get real money and leverage that into other assets or into other investments. You know, um, he in this case is getting 12 billion, 12 and a half billion in uh, loans. Uh, from the from banks like Morgan Stanley and a few others um, that aren't named in the SEC filing, and then thirteen billion dollars in loans that are leveraged against uh, his stock, right? Um, and that is uh, a smart move in of himself, where he doesn't really need to have the money; he just needs to have another company that's whose fate is tied to the fate of Twitter and his own stake in it, um, and 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 basically allows him to leverage himself in into buying something that he probably shouldn't be able to and wouldn't, you know, be able to otherwise unless he sold a significant or, you know, sold a huge chunk of Tesla stock, which in of itself would, you know, kind of defeat the purpose of then buying Twitter. You know, if you want to keep that trillion dollar valuation, you don't want to sell a huge chunk of the company um, to buy another company, even if it's going to allow you to inflate the value of um, the previous one. 
Um, so, I, you know, I think like, you know, trust that instinct, trust that feeling in your stomach when, you know, it feels like bullshit because it is. It's all it's a lot, to a great extent. It is bullshit. And it boils down to he's yeah. been able to convince people it's worth more than it is. So another thing we wanted to get your thoughts on, Edward, was the reports that Biden is looking at canceling student debt. Some of it, a lot of it, maybe all of it. Those have all been floated. Uh, And then today uh, we were told that uh, they're ruling out like everything's on the table except for 50,000 per person. You could you could infer that means nothing, uh, nothing above 50,000. That's probably going to be a limited amount. And people still don't have a lot of faith in any uh any cancellation any substantive cancellation have you been following this and do, what are your uh what are your thoughts and predictions on whether or not biden's going to cancel some or any student debt you know i would love for him to cancel student debt but he already held himself to um less than fifty thousand dollars i think um or the report said that he he's definitely considering it, but it'll be less than fifty thousand. You know, ten thousand has to be the floor. Um, but really, I don't know. It feels like it makes sense. Like they can't actually they can't uh, decide that they're not going to forgive it right before um, um, elections, right? Or before midterms, um, and they can't do some bullshit amount because that'll probably also be the same as saying that they're not canceling it because people have been used to having their loans on pause, right? And int- reintroducing them at any level, even if you significantly reduce the amount, is going to be a huge disruptor to a lot of people's lives, right? This is the first time they haven't had to pay this onerous uh, debt for a long time, um, and they haven't had to do it for two years, and suddenly you're reintroducing that cost. Um, I, I, you know, like the only thing that really makes sense is forgiving it fully. You know, he has the authority to do it. He campaigned on forgiving at least some of it, but and then uh, also promised that he would look into the matter with the education secretary. Um, you know, to me, it, it feels also like a political no-brainer, but I think reporting has said that some people in the administration are divided about it because they think it'd be a handout or they think that he doesn't have the authority to do it or he, they're worried about the effect on inflation. Um, but ultimately it just boils down to, I think, you know, what, I think there is a lot of bullshit that people do say, um, in the administration and in very, and, you know, in economics about student debt, insisting that it's a handout to the rich or it's a handout to, um, you know, highly educated groups who can pay for it anyway. Um, you know, one of the most popular arguments is that the median household or something you know, has something has like no student debt and one reason why that but one reason why the median household doesn't have student debt is because half of people in this country more than half of these people in this country if i remember correctly don't go to college um and the people who do are not all you know wealthy private school um elites who can afford to pay it off that you know it's just, it would be a huge act of wealth transfer and re- wealth redistribution wealth redistribution and a lot of the arguments against it have essentially boiled down to i paid for it and even though it was cheaper and easier for me to pay for it um it's unfair if you have to pay for it if you don't have to pay for it right and you sh- and you should repay the government or you um the 1.2 trillion dollars of loans that are outstanding right now but i don't know i, th- I think it's just it, it it's hard to talk about because it is it feels like such a simple common sense issue that you would get support politically from voters and be rewarded for doing it and also just make people's lives better 
And what is the point of having power if you're not going to make people's lives better? Um, or even at the very least, in the most cynical way, in the most cynical viewpoint, like also get yourself reelected, right? Or get supporters to back you. And one way to do that would be to forgive student debt. But I don't know. I hope it's more than, I hope it's closer to 15,000 than 10,000. But we'll have to see. Yeah, I love this idea that all these really super wealthy people are just struggling with all the student debt that they, they haven't paid back yet. Um, <laughs> it's always amazing when they kind of trot out these kind of arguments. It's ridiculous. Um, yeah, it's been it's been funny seeing people start to like really freak out about it. You've you're seeing a freak out about on the right about it. You're seeing it from the more austerity minded liberals that are also freaking out about it. You know, it's the kind of thing like you pointed out, Edward. It's like they don't need. Uh, votes in Congress or anything to do this. Like we've talked about this a couple of times. This is something Biden could just do. I don't doubt that all the the consultants that work with the party have been taking a look at the, the Biden's approval rating for young people. And I'm sure that's going into this decision. You know, I think it would be cool if they actually went through with it. I guess it's just it's the kind of thing that nothing about Biden's career is, or nothing about the last year and a half or so has indicated that they have ever any intention of doing stuff beyond talking about these positive things. And they seem to want the credit, like we've talked about before, the credit for saying, um, whether it comes to the Build Back Better framework or whatever, they love to have get media people talking about how progressive they are with these these bold plans that they have that never seem to materialize so it would be great if they actually did it and it, it actually helped a few people like with any big uh promise of a big bold progressive agenda that gets promised um either from liberals either in canada or the united states or elsewhere my general viewpoint would be should wait till the the thing has actually happened before celebrating over it and not give any credit for uh you know suggesting this stuff because i think that's what they, they want to have it both ways where they can be framed as being these big progressive champions for mentioning these things without ever actually going through it and, and you know inevitably uh pissing people off on the right or in their own party about it um so I would hold off on the celebrations until this, this this moment actually comes. I mean, yeah, I don't know. I mean, like, what do y'all, are you hopeful? Like, in secretly, in, in your heart of hearts, do you hope that it's going to happen or see it happening? I think they're going to try to please everyone. And what that might look like is something a little bit more than 10000 per person, but not 50000 not full cancellation. And they'll probably means test it. Uh, on the campaign, Biden had claimed one time that he wanted to uh, cancel, what was it, 100% of the debt if you made under $125,000 mm -hmm. a year and went to a public school or an HBCU. Noble. That's, yeah. that's you know, a lot. It's not enough, but it's a lot. Mm -hmm. And... That doesn't really get mentioned often, but he said it in a campaign uh, event live stream with Don Cheadle. Uh, <laughs> so he was kind of all over the board in his promises. You're going to lie to Don do... Cheadle, sir? Come on. <laughs> right, right. So I think it's I just going to be, uh, I think it's going to be like, if I had to guess, like maybe 20,000. Yeah, I can see that. I could see them also like adding all kinds of caveats onto it as well. That's the kind of when these 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 people kind of get their hands on these what should be no brainer ideas uh, to cover as many people as possible, and all the caveats are going to get added. In. If you start a business in a in an economically disenfranchised area that's profitable for three years, and you earn under seventy five k and went to this specific school, then possibly you might have access to some tax relief on loans. And, you know, it's like, it would be great if they could just do the thing and help as many people as possible. It's just that's inevitably with, with neoliberals, 
the, the direction that it, these things inevitably end up going. So um, yeah. again, I'd be happy. I, I know plenty of Americans with, with student debt. I'd be, I'd be thrilled for them if this actually worked out. Yeah. Disclosure, so. conflict of interest. I have student debt. Yeah. Know? Yeah. So I'm partisan on this issue. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like, I think I, this is one thing that like, cause obviously, you know, people have student debt in Canada as well. I went to school in Quebec and was mm-hmm. born here. So it's like my school, my education was quite cheap. I didn't have to take on these big, like six figure loans. That's one thing though, that when I see Americans sharing online about their debt, their student debt that they've taken on. And like, I've, you know, I've spent uh, 10 years paying this debt and I actually owe more now than when I started paying it oh, God. and these kind of things. And that's the kind of thing that when I, when I see that, I just wonder how this has been, how this is legal, how it's been allowed to continue, how there's not people just riding over the streets over it. Like people have really spent, you know, decades of their lives paying off these loans and not even put even a dent into, into these, into these loans. Uh, it's extremely, you know, just inherently wrong and predatory. Um, especially when these are young people, essentially, that are, say, if you want to go to school, you have to take out these loans uh, because of the cost of education. Very young people are making these decisions. And then, you know, decades later, they're still under the thumb of this, this like really crushing debt. It's it's extremely radicalizing to even see this stuff. So I can imagine being caught up in this cycle yourself uh, and why it would be really appealing to, to possibly have some alleviation of that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I don't know. Um Maybe he'll surprise us. And no, he won't. <laughs> he That's won't. funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, you're just going to have, and those midterms are coming up. You're just going to have to vote extra hard. Vote vote blue extra hard this time. I'm I know, vote I know twice. you voted blue. Yeah, I know you voted blue no matter who last time. You voted your ass off last time. This time, though, even more. You're going to vote even harder. Mm-hmm. Then maybe they'll think about it. They'll put together a committee to take a look at this. It'll be good. I mean, I yeah, we'll have we'll have a nonpartisan or bipartisan committee to investigate. There we go. You can put throw that on a bumper sticker. Hell yeah! Everybody loves a bipartisan committee. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's all we had, Edward. But thanks, thanks a lot for joining us on the on the program today. It was great to talk to you uh, about thanks all this for stuff. Me, y'all. It was great talking with both of y'all. Where can people find your work? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Big Black Jacobin. Um, and I'm at Vice uh, at Motherboard where I write about labor and tech and crypto thank you for joining us of course thanks for having me thank you for listening to The Insurgents please remember to subscribe over at theinsurgents.substack.com find the podcast on all your favorite podcast apps and please remember to leave a review on Apple Podcasts it's very helpful and we appreciate it a lot but please again don't mention Ken Klippenstein in the review. He is banned from the show. It's a lifetime ban, so please do not mention him in the review. And we'll be back later this week with more of the content that you know and love. Goodbye. <laughs>